This is Good Together, the podcast that inspires you to create change in the world every day. Keep listening for actionable tips and tricks to incorporate eco-friendly practices into your daily life. We've been featured by Apple as the number one podcast for conscious consumers, and we can't wait to welcome you into our community of changemakers. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. We're the founders of Brightly.eco, the new platform for conscious consumers. We believe in supporting all creatures, great and small. And our team of experts show you how to live and shop responsibly by sharing world-changing lifestyle ideas, products, and more. To read show notes from Good Together and to browse all of the planet-friendly goodness that we feature, head to brightly.eco slash podcast. And to help spread the word about the podcast, tap on this episode and share Good Together with your friends and family. A simple text message helps us grow and create change around the world. Every day, 28,000 tons of single-use plastic finds its way into the world's oceans. 86,000 dump trucks full of used or discarded clothing are either burned or dropped into a landfill. And 109,000 tons of used electronics, the weight equivalent of 68 million laptops, are discarded. These facts might be depressing, but you know what? We all can do something about that, and that is recycling. In this episode, I'm talking to Rosie Briggs and Kylie Bird of EcoCycle, one of the oldest and largest non-profit recyclers and zero-waste organizations in the U.S. Needless to say, this conversation is chock-full of simple and practical tips on recycling and waste management every one of us should know. Welcome to Good Together, listeners. Today we are finally talking about one of the most popular and probably the most confusing topics in sustainability, which is recycling. We have been waiting to have true experts in this space to come onto the podcast, and I'm especially thrilled that today's guests come recommended by our community. Hi, Ray, uh, our awesome Scout Ambassador. I want to welcome Rosie Briggs and Kylie Bird, who work at EcoCycle, which is one of the oldest and largest nonprofit recyclers and zero-waste organizations in the U.S., and has an international reputation as a pioneer and an innovator in resource conservation. Without further ado, I, do, I want to welcome Rosie and Kylie. Uh, can you guys please uh, tell us about EcoCycle to begin with, and then tell us about your role at the company? Hi, thanks for having us. I'll start. I, my name is Rosie Briggs, and I'll intro EcoCycle and then myself. So EcoCycle, as you said, is a nonprofit mission-based recycler. We're dedicated to building zero-waste communities. We were established in 1976, which, as you said, again, makes us one of the oldest and largest nonprofit recyclers in the country. And we do zero-waste programming and education, outreach, infrastructure, and legislation in all sectors of the community. And we, as, we also operate the Boulder County Recycling Center, which is our local recycling Center and the Center for Hard to Recycle Materials, which we call the CHARM, and Kylie will talk more about that. Um, again, my name is Rosie Briggs. I'm the Community Educator community education and engagement manager at EcoCycle. Uh, I also manage the Eco Leaders Network. So essentially what that means is I do a lot of public speaking and presentations, trainings and webinars, and I train and coordinate about a thousand folks in our um, county, in our community, to be ambassadors for zero waste and sustainability to those around them. 
And I'm Kylie Bird. I'm the Center for Hard to Recycle Materials Communication Specialist. So I work closely with other members of the Charm Yard staff to keep the facility running smoothly, engaging with customers and performing educational outreach, organizing volunteers, that kind of thing. But um, it's true that at EcoCycle, we all wear many hats. So I also do other work for the communications and development team, as well as the defense department and the front desk. Awesome. Well, welcome to you both. I'm very excited and looking forward to our conversation. So let's start with the begin in the beginning, right? Everyone knows that recycling is good for the planet, right? Hopefully, hopefully everyone knows that. But can you go into more details as to why exactly is it good? How is it good for the planet? Yeah, so um, we could talk about this for hours. We're huge fans of recycling. <laughs> um, I think a lot of people focus on recycling as kind of a keeping things out of the landfill issue, which it is, but there's a whole lot more to it. So um, the statistic that I like to use is that 42% of greenhouse gases, and this is according to the EPA, come from our consumption emissions, which means that that's just the footprint of our stuff, the stuff that we're consuming. So mm -hmm. our food, our packaging, electronics, bags, bottles, just all the stuff we're consuming makes up almost half of our greenhouse gas emissions. So we can focus on transportation and heating our homes and things like that as we should. But unless we're taking a really good hard look at our consumption and, and our stuff, we're really missing out on this huge chunk of the problem. So it's not just what happens downstream, it's also what happens upstream. Um, and to illustrate that, um, I like to tell the story of aluminum, <laughs> uh, which is kind of a, a, the poster child for why recycling really makes sense. And it does depend on what material you're talking about. But aluminum specifically is like a really good illustration of why it's pretty, um, uh, pretty silly not to recycle. So uh, in order to get aluminum, we have to go into the, in the rainforest and clear cut and um, and mine this ore called bauxite. That's the, the mineral ore that we get aluminum from. Um, and of course, we want to keep our rainforests intact as much as we can for many reasons, but you know, they're the lungs of our planet. So after we've gotten that um, bauxite, we have to turn it into alumina and then turn it into aluminum. And so in order to do that, they usually send it all the way up to Iceland of all places. So we're going from the tropics to, the, to Iceland. Wow. Um, and then there's just this incredibly energy intensive process to turn that bauxite into alumina and then turn that alumina into aluminum. So just, I mean, just the transportation impacts of that process is huge, but then the energy impacts of that additional, those two processes is also huge. And then from there we make cans, you know, we make whatever aluminum product we're making and then we, we uh, transport them all over the world, which again, huge impacts. Um, and then if you think about that entire process and like, you know, a, a panda lost its habitat for that, like, oh, that entire process. You think about you drinking out of that, you know, that soda can, and then in two minutes finishing it and then burying it in the landfill and then doing that entire process all over again. That's just an incredibly silly thing to do when you could just make a new can out of that existing can. We're just taking these valuable materials and literally burying them in the ground and then redoing this whole ex expensive, impactful, harmful process when, we could just, we already have the aluminum, we could just make it into new aluminum. So again, each material has its own story and its own set of impacts. But um, I think thinking about where your stuff actually comes from, where do we get that mineral? Or where do we get the, those natural resources? How do we turn them into those products? And then what are we doing them doing with them after we've consumed whatever is inside of those products is really like, that's what we need to be thinking about, not just how can we, you know, keep landfills more empty. It's really a, a much bigger story than that. 
Wow, I love that story. I certainly uh, never, I mean, I haven't really thought about this. And we always, whenever we have these conversations, we always mention this uh, importance of knowing where things come from. Uh, because, yeah, <laughs> I didn't know, I like, I just didn't envision it in my head uh, that, you know, yeah, we must have stolen, like, almost like a habitat from a panda or another animal just to get this basically can of, uh, aluminum can of, coca-cola right and then we just if we don't recycle all of this process was has been just like so wasteful um that the great puts things into a perspective for sure i think that's a great story uh, to get us started into how can we recycle what should we know about recycling what are some do's and don'ts and as i call it recycling 101 and as i've mentioned i would love for us to start with biggest recycling misconception something that we and i'm sure i do every day or every week and this is wrong <laughs> can you guys uh, get us started on this yes i would say anecdotally the biggest mis misconception about it is that anything with a recycling symbol on it is therefore recyclable that's unfortunately just not true the resin identification code which is that number inside of the symbol on plastic items helps us understand what type of plastic an item is made of but that piece of information is just one of many that determines an item's recyclability. Equally important factors include size, color, whether there are mixed materials present that are attached to that, um, the condition of the item, for instance, how clean it is, and the infrastructure that region has in place for processing that item. Furthermore, unfortunately, recycling only works if there is demand for the recycled material to be made into new products. So it's a very complicated kind of wheel that has to turn in order for the system to work. Rosie, do you have any other things that are misconceptions that we should be aware of? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, as Kylie said, a lot of people just think of recycling um, or recyclability as just depending on whether you could literally melt something down and turn it into something else. And they don't, mm -hmm. um, they're not aware of, yeah, the global markets that are involved, as Kylie said, and the many um, infrastructural demands that are involved with that, as well as the legislation and the policy and, you know, who who's making these things and, and why aren't they responsible for what it takes to turn it into something. So I think um, that all feeds into what we call wish cycling, which is when people just put in a whole bunch of stuff, <laughs> just hoping that it's recyclable. They just throw anything they hope is recyclable into the bin. And then uh, that becomes a problem for recyclers because we then have to sort out contaminants. Um, and I think lastly, I would say that, um, that people forget, this isn't necessarily a misconception, but maybe um, just, they don't know, um, that there are real people working in your recycling facility. So if you throw in your, you know, toxic waste or your, even your hamburger that's about to go moldy, someone is going to have to grab it and someone's going to have to deal with it. So it's, it's more than an environmental, um, issue for many reasons, but one of those reasons for which it's a human issue is because there are real live workers that have to touch your stuff. Yes, no, it, it's a great point. It's a, it's a great thing to remember for all of us. You're right. Um, so which items can be recycled? That's a very simple but very complicated question, isn't it? <laughs> you are right. So this is really um, a follow-up for what Kylie perfectly introed in the last question. So um, in order for something to be recycled, again, it's not in, just about whether that item inherently is good at being turned into something else. Uh, it depends on whether there's local infrastructure and facilities that can manage and, and sort those materials and whether there's a market for those materials, which will buy them and turn them into something new. So uh, glass, for example, is a really inherently good material at being melted down and turning turned into something.
something else just infinitely. You can recycle glass infinitely. But if we don't have a way to collect that glass and to sort it from other materials, to find someone to buy it, to turn it into new glass products, and then a way to get it there, then we can't recycle glass. So it for those reasons, um, because those factors vary widely from place to place, there is no one universal set of recycling guidelines. And so for that reason, it's um, important to check for your local set of guidelines. So of course, we have you know, the, the general ones that are good at being recycled. So, you know, paper and cardboard and aluminum and glass um, and steel. But, um, you know, within within every community, there's going to be a different set of guidelines because it depends on all of those different factors. Makes sense. So what are certain items that we should not be recycling because they just simply cannot be recycled, but probably many of us are trying to put them still in the end at blue bean, right? Right. So again, there's, um, you know, this varies from, you know, there are some things that probably we would say absolutely not to that another recycler would take. Um, so again, it just, it depends on where you are, but there are, you know, um, kind of the dirty dozen that we like to bring up in this conversation. So um, plastic bags is a huge one. Um, and the reason for that is that we have all these moving gears and wheels in our facility. And when you put in a plastic bag, um, it just does a great job of jamming that material or <laughs> jamming that machinery up. So we have to shut everything down. We have to send someone in there to try to cut out all the plastic bags, and it's a huge waste of time and energy. Uh, not to mention kind of a safety hazard. So there are um, there are markets for plastic bags, and Kylie can talk about how plastic bags are uh, hard to recycle material. But in in your curbside bin, that's a big one. Also, food and liquids is a huge one. Um, and again, that's because we have real folks working <laughs> at our facility. So when you give us things that are going to spill on other materials, and we can't sell those materials, but if you send, you know, if you if you give us food or liquid that's about to go moldy, then um, you know, rats will come in and wasps and um, the mold will affect our workers. And then we won't get paid for those bales if they're covered in food and liquid. Um, hazardous materials is, of course, a big one. Don't give us syringes or diapers or anything like that. Um, these are kind of the universal ones. But again, um, you know, wherever you are, will have their own set of um, their own their own dirty dozen. Mm -hmm. um, and then another just, you know, one another piece of that is just like, uh, the a lot of materials just aren't designed with recyclability in mind at all. So there's just um, there are some things that are problematic because of the way that they'll affect our machinery or our workers, um, but others are just too they're just too flimsy. They're not made of anything that anyone would ever want to buy and turn into something else or be able to. So that's a big um, a big reason for things that we can't recycle as well. Very interesting. And we'll we'll get into the whole topic of, you know, know your local rules and then all the rules, recycling rules are always different or most of the time different for different places, which doesn't make it easy on the consumer. We'll get into that. I know it's a, it's a whole kind of discussion that um, I want to ask to have. But um, is there anything that people are doing wrong, which I'm sure there, there are plenty of things that we're doing wrong, that's preventing things from being recycled? Of course, probably the most, uh, hopefully, um, listeners know about that, right? Like uh, not cleaning your food containers and throwing it in a recycling bin without doing that. That's, that's the 
one of the things that I know, but some other things, if you guys have some examples. That's absolutely true, Lisa. As Rosie mentioned, there's a lot of good reasons for keeping food out of the recycling stream. Um, next, I would say to touch on what you already mentioned, try to find out who your hauler is and see if there's information out there about what they can accept. If they do customer outreach answering questions, then definitely take advantage of that opportunity. I think there's a lot of room for improvement in terms of opening up lines of communication between people trying to recycle and people who actually facilitate recycling. Um, because that conversation is is how you get to, is this item recyclable? And the, the fact that that conversation hasn't been happening as much as it should is why wish cycling is a problem. People think, oh, I, I can't bear to throw this away, so I'll put it in the recycling bin, which unfortunately can kind of undermine the other folks who really dedicate themselves to knowing what's recyclable. Because if there's a high enough proportion of contamination in a bale of recycled material, unfortunately, they'll just reject the load a lot of the time because it's going to present too much contamination and it therefore invalidates all of the nearby stuff that is eligible for recycling, if that makes sense. Um, the third thing I would say is not staying current with best practices is uh, kind of a thing we could improve as, as a recycling community. For instance, crushing cans has fallen out of favor. It can cause cans to be misorted as a flat. So one of the first processes that happens at our materials recovery facility is um, the single stream that comes in, all of the mixed up commingled recycling gets separated out into flats, which are paper and cardboard and fats, which are metal, glass, uh, plastic items, that kind of thing. So if the cans have been crushed, then they have a high likelihood of getting missorted as paper and cardboard and contaminating that stream. So uh, we should not be uh, crushing our cans, correct? That's correct. Um, but again, I, I would okay. say some that it's possible there are places that would like you to do that. Go ahead, Rose. Yeah. So the reason that it's it, the reason that it's changed, um, one of the reasons is because um, in the past we did um, multi-stream recycling. So you know, if you were recycling uh, a while ago, or if you know you're in a community that still does that, you would have a different bin for each material, and then you would bring those in separately or get them picked up separately. And so we liked to for the cans to be crushed so that they would take up less space um, because they're you know <laughs> they take up a lot of volume for being so empty. Um, and now that we have multi or single stream recycling in most communities and in Boulder County, um, now that we have to sort one material from the next in our facility, as Kylie mentioned, we have to figure out, we have to be able to figure out which materials are fibers, paper and cardboard, and which are containers like cans. So now that we've made that switch, um, we have to uh, ask people not to flatten their cans even after we asked them to several decades ago. So if you're in a community that still does multi-stream recycling, that you could still um, flatten your cans. But again, check with your hauler. Got it. Very interesting. Um, okay, so let's talk about reduce, reuse, recycle. That's a familiar phrase that traces its route back to the environmental movement or in the 70s, 1970s. So this three-part framework was originally designed to explain how the EPA would manage hazardous waste, uh, which I just learned recently, of course. <laughs> but is this approach still the best way to go as we as a society try to combat our waste problem and just think about waste management recycle? Yeah, um, so reduce, reuse, recycle is often thought of as just kind of a cute little slogan, yeah. you know, like keep America beautiful, just kind of <laughs> thing you say. Um, but you're right, it's an actual waste management and natural resource conservation hierarchy, hierarchy that was established by the EPA. Um, and it is the 
the order matters. It's not just <laughs> like it sounds cuter in that way. Um, reduce is first and then reuse and then recycle. Um, and that is something that we have forgotten <laughs> in our general approach to sustainability, I think. Um, so we, we place a tremendous amount of pressure on recyclers to solve this problem and recycling as a process, when really that should, that should be the last step. We should reduce everything we can. We should then reuse everything we can, and then we can recycle the rest. Um, we can't, we can't depend on recycling to solve this problem. We can't solve it with recycling if we haven't done the work on the first two, and we tend to skip those first two at this point. Um, we do have some more R's now. <laughs> so uh, as we work on our circular economy solution, so like redesign is a big one. You know, we shouldn't, you shouldn't put out a product unless you have a plan for what's going to happen to that product. Um, you know, you shouldn't have to figure it out later. Um, refuse is another one just because we have so many ridiculous single use items out there that are just genuinely useless. There's no, no reason <laughs> to have them. So if we, if we can re refuse them as, um, as consumers, that's a good thing. And then we also added rot to talk about composting, which I think we'll mention uh, a little yes. bit later, but um, that is of course a huge piece of zero waste. Um, and I think all of this just goes into the bigger concept of circular economy. If you have, <laughs> again, we could talk about circular economy for hours. If you have the chance to do some, some research on that, it's just about, you know, how can we, um, how can we reduce the natural resources that we have to bring into our society that we have to mine <laughs> to bring into our society. Um, and then how can we reduce the waste that comes out um, the back end of consumption and how can we keep natural resources cir um, circulating within our, our society and our economy as long as possible mm -hmm. without an input or output. Yeah, that's great. That's great to know. And I uh, love seeing more R's in there as well. Um, so after someone uh, recycles something, what's the process those items go through? You've kind of mentioned, you gave us a few uh, glimpses into the recycling process, but maybe if you can share more details, because I think the more we realize what's happening on the back end, the, the more we think about people who actually, real people work uh, working in the recycling factories, um, hopefully this will give us as consumers, as a society, the biggest nudge that we need to really think about how we recycle things. Yeah, so um, it is really a magical journey that these processes go through, or that these um, materials go through in this process. Um, and each material, as we've, as we've been saying, each material has its own story upstream and downstream, and also within the recycling process, each material is going through different things. So um, I'll speak for Boulder County, for example just as an example of how a system works. So um, in in Boulder County, you can put out your recycling cart on the street and then your hauler will come pick it up. And a hauler is, um, you know, who whoever is <laughs> driving the trucks around to pick up your stuff. And sometimes they are the same entity as whoever runs the recycling center. Sometimes they're the same entity as whoever runs the landfill. Sometimes it's both. Sometimes it's the city. Um, sometimes it's a nonprofit. Um, and each community really differs in how they do that. So sometimes, again, it's a single contract. Sometimes it's a municipal contract. Um, uh, other times it's just kind of an open market and you can choose your hauler and it really, really depends. Um, so here in Boulder County, who, no matter whoever, no matter who your hauler is, all of the recycling comes to Boulder County Recycling Center, um, which is a a kind of a cool partnership between our local government and EcoCycle, which is a nonprofit. Um, and that's pretty unique. We're really uh, lucky to have a mission-based nonprofit um, running the recycling facility. So then all of your stuff then goes to our facility um, and it goes through our um, MRF, which is 
MRF, it stands for Materials Recovery Facility, which is what the Boulder County Recycling Center is. And then each of our items gets sorted from one another. So we have people in there, we have machines, we have lasers, we have magnets, we have all this really cool stuff. Uh, it's like a big Rube Goldberg machine. Um, and we're sorting out, um, you know, cans from glass, from cartons, and then we're sorting out plastics and then each resin from um, all the other resins. We're, send, we're sorting out, you know, paper from cardboard and then all the different um, uh, grades of paper from each other. And then from there, we're making huge bales of those materials um, once that once we've isolated them. And then those bales go to the markets um, and each market is totally different. It, it depends on who is buying your stuff. Um, we at EcoCycle have always dedicated ourselves to making those markets as local as possible. So we are right on a train track, <laughs> for example, and we send some of the stuff on, right on the train. Um, so again, it, it really depends, but um, there, there are so many stakeholders, there are so many players in this process. Um, and um, it is honestly really fascinating if you have the opportunity to look it up. We have, for example, some videos on our web, or on our YouTube, just EcoCycle, of our lasers that are sorting our plastics. Um, and so then anyway, by the, by the time we get um, to those markets, the markets are the ones who are physically turning the recyclable into something new. So, you know, if we're sending our, our, you know, glass off to our glass recycler, they're the ones who are actually sorting it by color and then melting it down to be turned into new glass. Mm -hmm. So what are some examples of what, uh, what all of these products, materials um, that we are sending into the recycling uh, facilities to be recycled? What are they being turned into? So I'll let Rose answer what the single stream is, what's happening with single stream, but I do have an interesting story about hard to recycle item in the form of mattresses. So about 50,000 mattresses are sent to landfill on a monthly basis in the United States, which actually, oh, excuse me, it's actually per day, 50,000 mattresses per day. That's a wow. heck of a lot of beds. And it's increasingly hard to, get, to give away a bed anymore with bed bugs and just multiple factors in play for that. So folks use their bed uh, for its whole usable life, and then they have to do something with it once it becomes unusable. So at the Center for Hard to Recycle Materials, we recycle mattresses and box springs with a wonderful social enterprise partner called Springback Colorado. And they employ folks who are recovering from addiction and who have formerly been incarcerated. So a population that's, you know, needs employment in a big way and often has a hard time finding that is being put to work um, to dismantle these this material that clogs up landfills, in fact, actually traps gases underneath it and bubbles to the surface of the landfill, presenting kind of an issue in that regard. Um, and then they dismantle these things. 95% of the materials get recycled, some of which gets down downcycled into dog beds and that kind of thing. And then other things, I believe they'd probably take the springs and just straight up put that into the scrap metal stream, which is a terrific use of that material. Um, so there is definitely the type of recycling that turns something into another version of itself, like glass bottles or aluminum cans, for instance. And then there's downcycling, which is one of the things we lean on a lot of the time at the charm facility, because due to the nature of the materials being hard to recycle, it's often not possible to transform them into the exact same version of themselves. So we have to come up with a new life, a new end use for that material in order to keep it out of the landfill. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, um, yeah, so to just um, 
have tell a less interesting story probably because that mattress one is amazing. Um, so glass, aluminum, and steel can all be infinitely recycled. So they don't lose quality. You can melt them down, turn them back into whatever they were or whatever you want, really, um, as many times as you want. So your ragu jar could become a beer bottle and then back into a beer bottle and then back into a jar. It can really go anyway with, um, again, glass, aluminum, and steel. Um, cartons uh, get a little bit more creative, as Kylie said. So like your juice carton or your milk carton, it often gets turned into like a, uh, like a, a building um, <laughs> material, like for your walls. Uh, and then um, plastic. So paper isn't infinitely recyclable because every time you recycle paper, the fibers get shorter and shorter. So that paper product has to become something a little bit less durable every time. So, but um, you know, so it could be, it could go from paperboard to, you know, um, office pack to maybe a paper towel. Um, but it does have about five to seven lives in it, <laughs> depending on how many times it can get recycled. Uh, and then plastic is really the one where it's just kind of like, it, it gets turned into something creative and then that thing usually goes to the landfill. So, you know, like um, PETE bottles, like your soda bottle, your water bottle usually gets turned into like a carpet and then the carpet goes to the landfill. And that's um, in large part because of the lack of producer responsibility on the, on, um, from the plastics recyclers, which we can talk about, but that's kind of generally what happens to stuff. <laughs> Next time you want to skip the big box stores and shop somewhere that's 100% carbon neutral, ethically sourced, and fairly priced, Thrive Market has your back. That's right. Thrive Market's goal is to make healthy and sustainable products accessible and affordable for all. While they have plenty of different grocery items to choose from, you'll also find beauty products, home goods, and more. Something we really love about Thrive Market is how easy it is to shop. Everything is personalized to you, and you can filter through the thousands of products by more than 70 dietary and lifestyle values. For instance, I can easily fill my cart with items that are vegan, from certified B Corps, biodegradable, by POC owned, and ethically sourced, all by checking off a few boxes. Thrive Market also has a one-for-one membership matching program, which I love. That means when, when you pay for a membership, a free one will go to a low-income family, student, teacher, veteran, or first responder. Are you ready to shop? Go to thrivemarket.com slash goodtogether to get 25% off your first order and a free gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash goodtogether. This episode is brought to you by Real Paper, tree-free toilet paper made from 100% bamboo. Our community has been asking us about paper-free swaps for items around the house, so this alternative to traditional toilet paper is right up our alley. I don't know about you, Laura, but I always run out of toilet paper. Me too, and I love that Real Paper delivers direct to your home while also using plastic-free packaging. It makes stuff so much easier. Also, while you probably haven't considered the environmental impact of your bathroom habits, unfortunately, over 27,000 trees are flushed down the toilet every day across the world. That's a lot of waste. And by using paper that comes from bamboo, you're supporting a product made out of renewable, eco-friendly resource. It's also super soft, and I couldn't tell a difference between the 100% bamboo paper and what I'm used to. Good Together listeners get 25% off your first order by using code BRIGHTLY at realpaper.com. That's R-E-E-L paper.com. Oh my God, Laura, I just had my favorite vegan lunch ever. It was a green Thai curry.
That sounds amazing, but what's your secret? I feel like plant-based meals have always been a pipe dream for me. I've been trying to cut down on my meat consumption, but I really don't have time to think up and prepare filling, tasty vegan meals. Same here. I've been participating in a vegan cooking challenge with the Brightly community, and I feel like I've totally failed. Seriously. <laughs> I feel like I've learned so many more meatless recipes this year, but when it comes to vegan cooking, I'm still very much intimidated. So when Thistle reached out to us, it was the perfect timing. Thistle's plant-forward meals are seriously tasty and are delivered ready to go on your doorstep. Right now, they're just on the West Coast, but they're adding more locations. Anyway, I was really surprised at how filling and super creative the meals are. The spices and the sauces they include are really unique and tasty. I loved how fresh everything was as well, given that it's mostly vegetable-based. Laura, I know both you and I love to cook, especially during the pandemic, but it's been a great addition to our weekly routines. It's a quick alternative to take out lunches between Zoom calls. Absolutely. Thistle is plant-based eating on autopilot. You don't even have to think about it, and bam, you're eating better for the planet. Good Together listeners can get $100 off with the code BRIGHTLY at thistle.co. That's T-H-I-S-T-L-E dot co. No, that's awesome. That's fascinating. Just kind of thinking about how many lives each material has. And like, um, if you, the way you guys position it, that's so super helpful for me to think about. Like, it's just so, makes it so simple, right? Glass, uh, steel, aluminum, they have infinite lives. So like, they're infinitely better for <laughs> the environment and the planet um, than plastic or even paper um, that that puts things into perspective really nicely. Um, so let's talk about composting. Uh, we've kind of alluded to, to that early in the episode. Composting is, is a huge part of EcoCycle Zero Waste Mission. It's also, um, I'm very happy to say that it's on the rise in popularity. Um, and if you guys can explain what composting is, kind of give us a brief composting 101 um, and the benefits of composting for the environment. Yes, um, huge composting fans over here. We, um, again, are primarily and originally a recycler, but, um, you know, we talk about zero waste in general and natural resource conservation. So composting became hugely important to us um, and we... We love it. So um, the the kind of story that I tell people, kind of like the aluminum story, just to kind of put it in perspective, is that as we talked about, recycling is incredible. We love it. Um, but it's not the silver bullet. It's not the, you know, it's not so black and white. It's, um, you know, it's better, but we have to do more things in addition to recycling. Composting, though, is super black and white, honestly. So uh, most people, you know, you were asking about the common misconceptions about recycling and the common misconception about composting is that people think that when they put their organic materials, meaning not organic like an organic apple, but organic meaning it comes from the earth and it's uh, it's um, biodegradable. So like food, you know, paper towels, yard waste, all that stuff. People think that when they put these organic materials in the landfill that they will break down and decompose in the landfill. So it doesn't really matter if you put it in the recycling or not recycling, in the compost or the landfill. Please don't put it in the recycling either. Um, but what actually happens is that um, when these organics are put into a landfill, they really only need one thing to decompose in the way that we want them to, and that's oxygen. So we want them to undergo aerobic decomposition, which is just the natural process of 
of these organic materials breaking down. But when we put them in a landfill, the landfill is airtight. Most people don't realize that. Um, it is specifically designed to be airtight. It is an oxygen-free environment. So when the organics are put into the compost and they are not given access to oxygen, not only do they not break down in the way that we want them to, in the way that we think that they do, um, so they undergo anaerobic decomposition, which means that, yeah, they don't break down um, normally. They break down super slowly. But also in that process, they emit methane. And methane is one of the greenhouse gases that just really packs a punch. Like we really, if we're talking about climate change and, you know, warming of the climate and the planet, we really need to be um, getting methane under control. So um, long story short, we're putting all of these organics in the landfill where A, they're not really breaking down and B, they're cranking out methane, which is warming our, our climate, our planet, our atmosphere. So it's a huge problem. And if we can take those organics out of the landfill, first of all, um, any given landfill is about half organics. Like half of pretty much any landfill is just that stuff. So if we could take wow. that stuff out of the landfill, not only would all of our landfills be half as full, which is great, but they wouldn't emit methane because organics are the only things in a landfill emitting methane. And then if we could do something productive with them, so not only are we shutting down those two problems, but we can also create some solutions with this stuff. So we can compost it. When we compost it, it does break down in a real way. It doesn't emit methane if we're doing it right. Um, and then it, it creates, you know, fertilizer. It creates um, nutri nutrition-rich soil that we can... Um, you know, grow new food with, and that's true recycling. <laughs> We're returning nutrients back to the uh, back to the soil to make new food, um, and then just to cherry on top, um, <laughs> once we have that compost, we can apply it to our soils, and then our soils are then um, they can uh, they can take part in a solution, yeah, in a climate solution that's called carbon farming. So when you apply something like compost to soils, then soils have the capacity to draw carbon out of the atmosphere. So we think about trees doing that, um, you know, drawing CO2 out of the atmosphere, sequestering carbon. But when soils have compost on them or, or some other um, soil amendment like that, um, they have the capacity to draw down about three times as much CO2 as a tree. So like all told, <laughs> we, can, we can put all our organics in the landfill, we can fill up our landfills, we can emit methane or we can take all these organics, have them break down, have them return nutrients to the soil, have them grow new food, and have them actually draw carbon out of the atmosphere in addition to not emitting methane. So it's like we're, we're causing this huge problem, but there's really this huge solution that's, um, that's available the, to us. And tap, we need to tap yeah. Very interesting. That's so, yeah, when people think about composting, right, they generally picture this kind of what you're talking about, a big compost pile uh, in, in the backyard or a composting facility. Um, but can you quickly give our listeners a few tips of how, um, you know, if you're not, you, you know, you haven't composted before, uh, can you compost in small spaces in a dorm or apartment? Um um, and really quickly, because we do have uh, a lot of information about composting on brightly.eco, but I'm curious if you guys have your kind of favorite composting tips yourself. Absolutely. Um, as Rose mentioned, composting is one of the most impactful things that we can do for the planet. And I love it, especially because it's very accessible. Like the creme de la creme situation is that you'll have access to industrial an industrial compost facility, which can take on more than you can generally do at home. So they can take in meat and animal products. They can take the compostable serviceware that you see out in the marketplace made out of polylactic acid and similar types of things. But what really matters like at home from a zero waste perspective is... Um, 
um, everybody eats. There's always going to be some amount of food that is not ingestible. So we have to do something responsible with it. And you can do that in a dorm or an apartment. Uh, you can, there's Bokashi bins, which are uh, activated enzymes in like basically a small trash can. There's a worm bin, which you can do again in something like a, like a shallow tote bin um, or a small trash can. They tend to like wide and shallow more environments more than deep environments, like a traditional kind of wastebasket, if that makes sense. Um, and then there's the backyard bin, which is can look like anything, including literally just a pile of stuff. <laughs> um, so mm -hmm. it's it's a very flexible thing you can do with the materials you have available, with the space you have available, with pretty much any budget whatsoever. And that's why composting rules. So I have the backyard bin, which I uh, composting actual bin, and I haven't been using it because for some reason I'm just intimidated by, I'm like uh, that mix of browns and greens. And I'm like, oh God, I will mess it up. So can you guys quickly, if you don't mind, tell me, uh, what can I do and what should I do? And just convince me that it's probably not that difficult to, to mix brown and green correctly, right? Um, I would say it's complicated science-wise, but not difficult to do. It's easy once you know how. Generally, you want a okay. two-thirds ratio of browns to greens. You want more carbon uh, elements in there than nitrogen elements. So if your items are small, about two inches in size, you want lots of surface area on there and a higher proportion of carbon to nitrogen. If it stinks, that's a good indication or like there's, there's signs, right? Like it'll be too wet or it'll be too dry or it'll be stinky or like there's all of these kind of visual and sensory cues you can take advantage of to be like, hmm, something is not right in this environment. It's not supporting itself. So I need to change something. And you can just Google. I have a lot of bugs of this kind and bugs on a are not even that bad of a thing. It's part of a natural composting environment. It just depends on what kind of bugs you have and why it is that they're there. Um, but I would say do your best to keep animal products out of that bin because that's going to draw pests and other vectors for disease. And mm -hmm. um, uh, just keep a higher proportion of carbon. Make sure you're getting good airflow. And uh, there's just so much to say about it. I could do a whole podcast episode on it. <laughs> How about you, Rose? Well, that's good. Yeah, Rose, do you have something to add? I, Kylie, honestly, I've, I've been blessed in that I've had access to curbside composting my entire life. So I've never really um, focused too much on doing it myself, even though I am uh, fascinated by the process. Um, I would say that in my experience, limited experience with it, um, you know, it's a natural process. It's not like you're you're doing an, a closed experiment in a lab like it's a process that nature wants to do and knows how to do and you just have to figure out how she does it and then tap into that <laughs> that's that's a great way to think about that well um yeah i have one one last question for you guys uh which is kind of very near and dear to me um and uh, this conversation, I think that's a, it's a great one to end it with. Um, what has been done on the institutional level? Uh, I'm talking about big corporations, governmental organizations, or even like nonprofits. Obviously, you guys are doing a lot, right? Um, but regarding waste management, like in recycling policies in the U.S., right? I'm, and I'm maybe even more curious uh, about big corporations and less curious about governmental organizations because as you guys were alluding to, right, why, uh, why, for example, companies that are producing, I don't know, milk cartons like or glass jars or any kind of product, why are they not just required to have very specific and simple uh, steps of for the end of life of the product, how to recycle it, how to dispose uh, of it and stuff like that? 
because we as consumers can do so much, uh, but I think there is definitely a lack of work uh, being done on on the big corporations and institutional organization side. And correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe I'm completely wrong. <laughs> you are not wrong. That was actually, yeah, very, very well posed question for sure. Um, yes. So I would start by saying that every time I talk to folks who are concerned about the state of our planet and natural resources and waste, I like to stress that it's not your fault. <laughs> it's just not. You're, you did not cause the great Pacific garbage patch because you, you know, were out and about and you couldn't get a glass jar for your applesauce and you got a plastic one. Um, it's a systemic problem. So as individuals, we're tied into this systemic problem and it's, you know, it's really hard to break out of. Like we can all try to live zero waste lives, but ultimately we're fighting, you know, upstream. We're fighting against this current that's been, it's just plastic, single use plastics being um, thrown at us. So you're right in that. So it's a systemic problem and therefore it, it requires a systemic solution. We as individuals can try to do our best and we should, and it's important. And you are making a difference when you do do your best on all of these things, but we do need to work to make these systemic solutions to set everybody up for success. So um, that, as you said, comes back to corporations. So um, that's what we call extended producer responsibility, what you were describing. Why, when, (laughs) if you're putting all of these materials out in the world, why wouldn't you be responsible for what happens to them? You should. That's, yes, you should. So um, each material in the recycling world kind of has its own story on extended producer responsibility. Um, Ultimately, in the U.S., we really don't have a lot of extended producer responsibility. We really don't. We have some examples for things like paint and some hazardous materials. Um, But for everyday things and packaging, it's really like it's it's market-based. So currently, for example, um, if you, you know, are making... um, something out of, again, glass or aluminum or, you know, one of those really recyclable things that we talked about, it makes more sense for you to buy back your own stuff to turn it into new stuff because it already exists. And like we said, it's a whole thing to go and mine the whole, the new natural resource and make things out of virgin materials. So um, some of those, some of these industries are buying back their own stuff because it just makes more sense, um, regardless of any kind of, um, you know, mission that they may have. Uh, In the case of plastics, this is where it just gets yucky um, because (laughs) plastics are, in fact, the plastics industry is incentivized to um, continue making their stuff out of virgin oil and gas because of subsidies. So um, (laughs) rather than they're putting out all of this plastic into the world and recyclers are having to deal with it. And then rather than taking back that plastic and turning it into new bottles like they could, it is possible for sure to turn an old bottle into a new bottle. Um, just technologically. Um, But instead of doing that, for the most part, they are continuing to drill oil and gas and make um, plastics out of of virgin oil and gas because it's subsidized for them to do that. So just because of that market model, um, you know, virgin materials are winning out, but it's a false market because of those subsidies. So um, (laughs) we need to, A, get rid of those subsidies, but B, as you said, create some policies that actually hold producers responsible because it's not fair for someone, you know, we're just figuring out what to do with all these plastics. And the the metaphor that we use a lot in this field is that we're, you know, (laughs) all of the taps are just turned on full force in our house and our house is flooding and Mm -hmm. recyclers are trying to take, you know, buckets, pots, whatever we have to try to bail the water out. But 
any reasonable person would first go turn off the tap yes. and then they would start bailing out the house and we haven't turned off the tap yet. So extended producer responsibility is something that really has not been great in the U.S., um, but we need to start taking um, taking action to do that. And now, actually, more than ever in the face of um, since the, the national sword policy passed, which was in a, a few years ago, China decided that they would stop taking our stuff because we were sending them too much stuff and it was too contaminated. And so um, as a result of that, there actually has been much more momentum than ever with things like bottle bills um, and extended producer responsibility and creating new markets um, and actually holding producers responsible. But um, yeah, we all hold um, power in that. And, you know, we can all write to our representatives. We can all be part of passing those bills um, and, and do your research and, you know, what bills exist in your state or in your area. Um, and there's a lot of really exciting opportunities right now. Actually, more than ever, people are finally excited about it. <laughs> um, but as you said, it's, yeah, we can't, we can't really move forward as individuals unless we're all moving forward as, you know, with infrastructure around us that sets us up for success. Exactly. Well, let's leave our listeners on a positive note. I, I, I We always love to ask these questions. And uh, the question is, um, what excites you the most, right? Again, we're all positive here. What excites you the most right now in the sustainability environmental space in general? If you guys both can share um, something with us. You know, I actually get this question quite a bit because I'm out in the in the public sphere talking about That's something awesome. that is actually very depressing. <laughs> so <laughs> I think I think it's really hard to sustain an excitement about, you know, our planet, but what excites me is that I get to interact with so many people who do care about it and it's so heartening to know. Um and there actually are so many studies that have shown that at this point especially, but you know, in the past as well, We have, you know, critical mass. We have enough people who care about the environment and are willing to do things that you don't have to convince anybody else. If you have you know, an uncle at Thanksgiving who wants to tell you that climate change is a hoax, good news. You don't have to fight him on it. It's okay. Uh, we have enough people that are, you know, concerned about the direction the, the planet is headed and, um, you know, want to be involved in the solution. And so all we have to do is really talk to your friends and families and communities and get involved and, and give them something tangible to do. Put out information that you know to be true. Um, you know, listen to reputable sources about it, learn what is actually going on and what the actual solutions are, and then help the folks around you take tangible steps because it really is really, um, I mean, you know, we're just seeing <laughs> environmentalism kind of on an unprecedented rate at this point. We're, we're all moving forward and we just need to be able to sustain, again, our excitement about it. And we need to be able to give ourselves and each other actionable steps that make us um, <laughs> feel like we're making a difference because we are. Love it. And of course, this is what Brightly is here for, right? We're all about actionable, simple steps that everyone can take in their everyday life to be more eco-friendly, planet-friendly, and just be more responsible, um, you know, planet champions. Kylie, what about you? I would say the thing I'm, that was very well said, Rose, first of all, but uh, I am most excited about the opportunity that's present in the hard to recycle market specifically. That's the market that I'm more aware of than um, the stuff Rose is more of an expert on. But a good example is plastic film recycling. I recently learned the Northeast Recycling Council did this amazing webinar on film plastic recycling that I listened to. And um, 
I learned a lot of the trash bags that are produced are made of virgin plastic, and then they're literally designed to go straight to landfill. So here's an opportunity for us to use the plastic film that's being recycled, for which there's not very much demand, to create a product that is ideally suited for that material. It's going to be, it's going to landfill. No, uh, people who are generally reducing their consumption of plastic film are going to continue to buy trash bags at some level. And um, here's this perfect use for this material. And we get to the excitement of this is like, we have this puzzle that we have to solve. There's all these little missing pieces and gaps to fill. And we get to figure out like where, how have we been doing this wrong the whole time? And how do we get to plug in the piece that's missing to this particular opportunity? That's what we do at EcoCycle and what a lot of people are doing all over the world. And I'm so excited to see where we take it. Yes, love it. And uh, you guys um, mentioned, you know, the fact that China is not taking um, our waste anymore. And this is interesting. Um, and this is something for me personally, I've just kind of became more aware um, of is that, you know, this whole waste management uh, problem, right? And this challenge that uh, came up um, in front of the US after China basically again refused to take out trash. But uh, you know what? It's actually having a, a positive a moment in terms of, you know, because we have this challenge, we don't have a way to get out of it and just send out trash somewhere else. So we have to come up with innovative, creative solutions. And this is why, for example, the zero waste moment uh, movement is on the rise now, right? I was just uh, reading tr- research on trends.com, you know, all of the zero waste uh, Google searches are having having a moment. Uh, and, you know, once we are within the sustainability movement, we always think like, oh, zero waste movement has been here forever, but it's become, uh, you know, more massive. And uh, people who have not been aware of, as we say, the uncle at Thanksgiving who has not been aware of zero waste or living sustainably, uh, massive, massively population is becoming more aware of that. And, of course, we're having more and more businesses, right, who are um, starting to make products uh, that are recyclable, we had some examples, right? Like Patagonia. Well, I was just interviewing um, someone from Rothis who are making shoes out of um, recycled water bottles. You know, with, we have companies like Blue Land and by Humankind who have, uh, you know, refillable products. Uh, we even have, again, menswear and lifestyle women's brand. Um, I believe Girlfriend Correct Collective is also using kind of recycled materials um, in their um, in their products. So uh, this is my, I kind of ask myself my own question, but this is something I'm personally excited about, uh, to see this business-driven solutions to this pretty big problem. Anyways, I had real pleasure uh, and fun discussing this very interesting but complicated topic with you, Rosie Kylie. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. And thank you uh, to EcoCycle for all the amazing work that you guys are doing. Thank you so much for having us, Lisa. (laughs) Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for all you do. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Good Together. As always, you can get show notes and explore lots more content related to all things eco-friendly living by checking out brightly.eco slash podcast. And don't forget to join in on the conversation that's happening on our Facebook group. 
Simply search Good Together Ethical Shopping and it'll come up. You can also leave us a question through voicemail. The link is on brightly.eco slash podcast. If you're into social media, give us a follow on Instagram, Facebook, and all of the channels. Our username is brightly.eco. Finally, we want to leave you with a reminder. Every day is a chance for you to create change, and you're already covered for today since you joined us here on the podcast. Stay kind and live brightly.